All right, now turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're in a series called Encounters with Jesus, and we're looking at stories in the Gospels where the infinite touches the finite, because when that happens, lives are changed. We're trying to live the most out of the rest of the lives that we have to live for the glory of God. And what we're going to do today, I mean, listen, everyone needs to listen because this could be the encounter that God wants you to hear because you're in it. It's for you. And for some of us, it means this, this is the story you take to someone else. But this is a powerful story. There's two major characters involved. Let me introduce those characters. One is Jesus the Christ. And John introduces Jesus this way. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This we're going to see a lot, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen God's glory in Him. We have seen God's glory full of grace and truth. Seen God's glory full of grace and truth. Know this about Jesus. He's the King of heaven. That's His home. And He's wearing an earth suit, but He... He dreams and thinks and speaks in heaven. That's his paradigm of looking at life is spirit, soul, body. He's going to look at opportunities where things are physical, and he, he looks at every gift from God is a means of pointing to like a heavenly truth, a spiritual truth. He does this in multiple conversations, and it will definitely happen in this one. The second character is a Samaritan woman going to get water at noon. There's a lot in that. First of all, she's a Samaritan. Now, there has been mutual disdain between the Samaritans and the Jews for hundreds of years going into this story. They don't like each other. It's somewhat even dangerous for Jews. And Jesus has rerouted his course so that he would go through Samaritan country for a bigger purpose. She's a Samaritan woman. Not good. It's looked down that a, a religious leader, a teacher, would be in the company of a woman, particularly alone, in any context, and especially the third part, this woman, a Samaritan woman getting water at noon. The hot part of the day, the reason she'll be doing that is because she has a dreadful reputation. She live, has been living a very difficult life with a series of terrible decisions, and now she goes and gets water at a time when she can just be left alone. She lived her life in the city of Sychar without ever making contact with, eye contact with anyone. And this is like a chemistry lab experiment because we're gonna see the, the glory of God in full truth and grace interact with this woman at the well. It's going to be fun. <laughs> Before we read it together, I want us to be looking for three things so that you can like, see these accentuated in your mind. Let them pop off the page. This is what the author wants us to be looking for, three things. One is the idea of water and thirst. It's going to be going back and forth. It starts very innocently with Jesus asking the woman if, he could, if she would fetch him some water at the well. It seems innocent at first, but Jesus has other things going on. In any part of the world where you live in the desert, but particularly in the Near East, water is life. 
That's literally true. You run out of water, you'll run out of life. And Jesus is going to use this as a metaphor for something much deeper, much more profound. As your body thirsts for water, your soul spirit is thirsting as well. Your soul, your spirit is thirsting for eternal things, everlasting things, meaning and love and a relationship with God, a clear conscience. And so Jesus is constantly throughout this gospel, particularly, and in this story itself, he's saying all of these thirsts in our lives are from heaven and they're to draw you to want more. We, we, we live a shallow life. He's, he's telling us, look, I know you're made out of dirt, but that's not all. <laughs> you're made out of heaven stuff too. And it's the heaven thing that's the real you. You're in the image of God. And you need to draw near to that. You're built on so much more. And these thirsts that you have are really, they're not physical, not even soulish, they're spiritual. G.K. Chesterton said it this way quite cleverly. He said, the man entering the tavern is going there in search of God. He might be thinking he wants a drink, but his spirit is saying, I want so much more. And this woman, she has eternal thirst, and she's satisfying those thirsts with ocean water, and that meaning all these serial relationships she's been involved in. And so Jesus is, the, is saying, I'm the living water, you will thirst no more. That's part one, this water, thirst, eternal thirst. Second uh, theme I guess we need to be looking for is, is the theme of worship. It's going to be used ten times. It's throughout the whole uh, dialogue between the two of them. And like, stop. I know what you're thinking. Don't think that. What a, don't think worship has anything to do with church. The more you distance the word worship from your church and singing hands and or singing singing songs and raising your hands, that that's going to uh, pollute your understanding of what the word truly means. Okay, worship in uh, in the original Greek words used in other places, and it's interesting. This will help us understand the meaning of the word. So the Greek word for worship is translated later into an Old English word that we used a a version of that where we came up with worship. But the English, the Old English word is worth-ship. We just shortened it. So worship literally is worth-ship. It's attributing value to something, extreme value to something. It's recognizing a superior value to a person or an item. Okay, see, we keep it out of the church, we're going to see how this is going to show up in this conversation. Here's a great, I guess, picture of, of worship in a very secular context. I was watching Antique Roadshow. Have you guys ever seen some of that? It's on PBS. It's, uh, yeah, it's kind of fascinating, but sometimes it lets me down. I'll tell you why in a minute. But the, here's, how the, here's how the show works. Uh, people go into their homes and they look either in their attic or over their fireplace, find something they think is valuable, and then Antique Roadshow shows up at town, then you apparently you wait in line all day, and they have a certified expert appraiser there as they're filming, and that appraiser's going to say, boy, that thing you've been thinking is priceless. Well, it actually is priceless. There's no price for this. It's junk. Take it off your fireplace, and that thing in your attic, ha, you know, whatever. So, that's the theme of the show. 
last month there, I was watching and there was a, a gentleman that was retired Air Force. In 1974, he was stationed to Thailand. And while in Thailand, he noticed he, a number of the pilots had Rolex watches, and so did many of the scuba divers. And he wanted a Rolex watch. So in 1974, he saved up all his money, and for $345.97, he bought a Rolex Oyster, what's it called? The Cosmograph. Well, almost 50 years later, he brings it to Antique Roadshow, comes to town, waits in line, and there's an expert appraiser telling him, well, you know what? Turns out this, this is called the Paul Newman Rolex because Paul Newman wore it in one of his most famous films. And <laughs> a watch like this that you paid $345.97, it can auction for about $150,000 to $200,000. Now this old veteran said, now we're talking. But the appraiser said, no, I said, I said something like this watch. Your watch is actually better. You see the little knobs here? They screw in and don't punch in. And then it has the word oyster written on the face. And so this is an extremely rare version of this Paul Newman Rolex. As a matter of fact, at auction, this watch might go for $400,000. And that's when he falls to the ground, which is the appropriate response. Honestly, the only reason I don't like the show is because when someone finds out their stuff is worth a gazillion dollars, they go, mm, okay. <laughs> what, what's the matter with you? Did you? Anyway, this guy gets it. They're like, wow, he falls on the ground. And then as he's getting up, the appraiser, almost in an irritating way, says, I said, like yours. I'm not through yet. <laughs> and so he says, since yours is this extremely rare version, but also it has... Uh, has all the original paperwork, and there's physical evidence that this watch has never been worn, your watch will auction for five hundred dollars to $700,000. And at this, this former military man starts cussing with praise. <laughs> Bleep all of that out. But here, here's, here's the part that I really like. The actual appraiser gets involved in worship. The actual appraiser shows worth. This was the last line he says. This is an absolute fabulous find. This is one of the rarest Paul Newman watches that I have ever seen, and there is none in better condition in all of the world. Thank you for bringing it to me to be able to see. He's attributing worth to that Rolex. That's worship, giving worship. And now Jesus, in the story, when we read it together, you'll see that Jesus says, we need to be worshiping in spirit and in truth. And when Jesus talks about spirit and truth, let me define those words so you know when he says those. Truth is pretty easy to understand. The truth of it is the worth of it. In the context of the watch, this is a $700 timepiece. Okay, I get that now. The spirit part, when Jesus says you need to worship in spirit, it means that the whole soul of a person is involved. Intellect, emotion, and will. Spirit worship means I agree and understand the, the value of this particular thing. Emotion is I have now an emotional response to that. In the case of the Rolex man, he was slain in the spirit, thrown to the ground, right? He's happy. And then will, it changes, it changes the way you live your life. So Rolex guy is like two things are going to 
one or two things. One, he's, he's not going to put this watch in the, roll it up in his sock and throw it in the top drawer because now he knows it's worth. Or, or he'll sell the watch and that watch will take care of him for the rest of his life. Uh, one person wrote on the sidebar of the video, he said, he took care of the watch half of his life and now the watch is going to take care of him the rest of his life. So, in summary, Jesus is going to say, in the context of worship, he's going to say, you're going to need to worship in spirit and in truth. It's not singing songs, and it's not just admiring God for who he is. It's a life change. It is altered. This will, this will change your identity. How God sees you and how you see yourself because of this. So in the story, there'll be a lot of talk about worship, but I want us to envision and imagine the actual worship that's happening before you. Because like Rolex guy, you know, found out his watch was worth 150 and then 400 and then 700. We're going to listen and listen as this woman sees and meets Jesus as a Jewish guy kind of bugging him to the possibility that he's a prophet to now an encounter with the transcendent becoming eminent. We beheld his glory in all, in the fullness of his truth and his grace. Watch how that worship takes place. And his worth is changing before her very eyes. And she's changed because of that. No singing. It's living worship in spirit and in truth. Starts with talk about thirst that lead to eternal thirsts. We're going to talk about worship, but it's going to, we're going to be able to visualize the worship. And the last, the third part in this storyline is how that leads to evangelism, spreading the good news. Okay, now we know what to look for, what the, what's going to jump off the page. Let's read John chapter 4. You know what? Why don't we just watch John chapter 4? It's better that way. Here we go. Would you give me a drink? Did you hear me? That's bad, huh? What? You, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, and a woman. I'm sorry. I should have said please. You know, it's not safe for you to be alone out here. Nor you. Why haven't you come with others? Why so late in the day? Don't women come to the wells in the, the cool of the morning? Yeah, well, none of them will be seen with me, so I have to come out now, in the heat, as you have so kindly reminded me. Why won't they be seen with you? Long story. I'd, I'd still like a drink of water, if you can spare it. Amazing what a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Would, except that you have nothing to throw water with, and this is a deep well. Besides, 
What do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water? Long story. But Jewish water is better than Samaritan water, hmm? That's not what I said. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well? Your water is better than his? I know, Jacob. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Wouldn't that be nice? The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. First, go and call your husband and come back. I will show you both. I don't have a husband. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. <laughs> oh, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah. Exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here. That it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you? Until the Messiah comes, it explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me. I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity was excited to be married, but he wasn't a good man. He hurt you, and it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him, because he was the only truly godly man you've been with, but you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. 
You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know. But not by the Messiah. And you know these things because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon, just the heart. <laughs> you promised. I promise. This man told me everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ! <laughs> Wait! Your water! You forgot your um. Foxy, your man, you told me everything I ever did! <laughs> um, Rabbi, we got food. What would you like? Ah. I have food to eat that you do not know about. Who got you food? Able to behold his glory, the glory of God in Jesus, her encounter with Jesus, she beheld the glory of God full of truth and grace. Beheld the glory of God in full truth and grace. She had eternal thirsts, <laughs> and she sees these finally quenched thirst no more. And it's because Jesus addresses her in truth and in grace. He speaks directly to her multiple sexual relationships, does not hold back, and tells her how her thirsts are not being quenched by these things. And then, in full grace, he says, and I'm the one. I'm the one that can help you thirst no more. I'm the means of you having a relationship with the Father. You're going to worship in spirit and in truth, not at this temple in Jerusalem, not in that temple in Samaria. But it's, it's the fullness of truth and grace. If you know Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller's definition of the gospel, think of it this way, the glory of God revealed in truth. He says, you are more wicked and evil than you dare believe. And the other part is the fullness of grace, that we are more loved and accepted and received than we'd ever dare to hope for. And so Jesus is offering her eternal life. And look what it says in verses 13 and 14. And then Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of your water 
uh, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never thirst again. The water that I will, will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into, up to eternal life. And when the Bible talks about eternal life, uh, it's not just life everlasting. It's not a, just a timeline. Jesus is referring to a qualitative different type of life, a life grasping and getting that we are heaven-made as well. We have heaven parts and heaven longings. It's a quality of life. Another passage says, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so this spring eternal, this eternity in our hearts is finally getting met because we have eternal thirsts. I mean, God gives us these eternal thirsts in, in our construction when He's forming the dirt that stays here. He's adding the nature of God that's everlasting. And so we have these thirsts that he's put there, a thirst for purpose, meaning in life. And Jesus is able to answer that, and he turns occupations into vocations, that he's arranged good works in Jesus Christ for each and every one of us to do, to be part of his historic plan. It makes even the mundane eternal in consequence. We have an eternal thirst for love. The reason that we're perpetually disappointed in the people around us and our parents and whatever is because we have an idealistic view of love, a perfect view of love that's unconditional and everlasting and, and accepting. And where did that perfect expectation come from? Well, it came from heaven. And we find out that we can't be the giver of that kind of love, no matter how we try to do that for our own children. We can't bring that, and we can't get it from anyone else. And Jesus comes and says, I, I'm the fulfillment of that, of that kind of love. Another eternal thirst is, is, is peace with God. And that's where Jesus comes and says, I, I can make your conscience clear. You can inherit my righteousness. And so he comes to, to bring that. He comes to give that. So if you're asking, how do I receive that kind of life? How do I receive that offering? He says, I give it to you. You cannot earn it. You cannot buy it. But by receiving it, it means you're turning over the keys to your life to him. You're saying you will be, as you are the king of heaven, you'll be the king of my life. I want you in control of every significant decision that I make. I want to follow you. I belong to you. That's what it means when you receive it. You, and you give him your debt, and you give him your shame, and you give him your powerlessness. It's an upgrade. The first section of that was just this eternal thirst. He thirsts no more. And, and the meat of it is about worship. Remember, not singing. It's about value. It's about worth. And look what happened he starts off as a Jewish man from out of town that's just cumbersome, and then he becomes a prophet, and then she finds him to be Messiah, and then he explains, she doesn't understand, but she will later, that he will be her savior. He'll be her savior. And he says, the hour is coming. No, the hour is now. Here's, look what it says in 23, 24. But, but the hour is coming, no, and is now here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The hour is coming. When John uses that phrase, whenever he talks about the hour, he always means the cross, the hour of the death of Jesus Christ. When you start the book of John, it says that in Jesus we're able to see the glory of God revealed to us in in the fullness of truth and the fullness of grace. That fullness is on the cross. The infinite becomes finite and goes all the way to that place. That's truth. <laughs> That's the fullness of, of grace. You say, when I, lie, when I die for you, you're going to see that. And look, in, look like what's happening here, this worship of, of spirit and in truth. That the worship, right? It means more worth. And so she, when she sees what Jesus is worth, all the other things that she worshipped becomes petty or at least secondary, right? It changes the values of everything. Let's go to Rolex guy, right? You tell Rolex guy early on, you say, hey, you need to spend $1,000 to clean up this watch. And what? $1,000 a lot to Rolex guy before the appraiser gets involved. Then the appraiser gets involved and says, look, I think we can bump this from $500 to $700,000 if you'll spend $1,000 on a licensed jeweler to just kind of clean it up. Now that $1,000, not so much anymore, right? It changed the value of $1,000 because it's comparative. And so if you're looking at her and saying, how do I get that kind of worship that's in spirit and truth, that the spirit part is look at her acting this out, look at how it's affecting her motion and her will, it, it, here's what to do. You just look at, look at the formula, spirit and truth. Start with truth. It's the truth of what's happened to her is what changes her. And like watch guy, right? As he found out more about his watch, the more he worth-shipped it. If, if we would just discipline ourselves to commit ourselves to understanding the glory of God revealed in Jesus. Honestly, you spend one month studying Ephesians chapter 1 or Colossians chapter 1. February, it's the shortest month of the year. Come on. Just spend the whole month in one chapter. Try to memorize the whole thing. Ephesians 1, Colossians 1. They are so <laughs> gravitationally dense with the glory of God revealed in Jesus. What happens is you'll feel the heaven thirst being drawn and filled in those passages. You're going to feel the heaven in you being overwhelmed. And in that awe and in that joy and in that happiness, you'll be changing your life. You'll be worshiping in spirit and in truth. It'll affect your emotion and your will. If you look in the Bible, every, anytime, every, anytime, every time a man or a woman comes in contact with the encounter with the glory of God and truth and in grace, it overwhelms them and it changes their life. They worship in spirit and truth and they end up saying, here I am, send me. It's what happened when Abraham had that experience. Moses, here I am, send me. 
Elijah, here I am. Isaiah, that's his famous line. Here I am, send me. And this woman at the well has an encounter with Jesus, understands his worth, and says, send me. Sometimes the problem with our inability to have this kind of worship is we don't know. We need to put in the time. And sometimes it's because, as I mentioned before, uh, worship is, worship, right, is proportional. It's competitive. It, it's, it's contrasting with other things that we put worth to. And what it comes down to sometimes in some of our lives, we care too much about too much. We care way too much about way too much. Let me give you an example. I saw, I was looking for, like, what does this look like? Uh, I, I saw a cute little video. They put a four-year-old boy at a table, pristine white table, nothing on it. They sit him down, and they bring in a stack of $100 bills, $10,000, boom. And they put in another stack of 10, boom, $20,000 cash. Now, Billy, you can have the $20,000, or you can have this, two double-stuffed Oreo cookies. And he goes right for the Oreos. Hey, okay, I want you to think about this. $20,000 cash American dollars or two Oreo cookies. Okay, I've thought about it. Give me the cookies. Takes the cookies. You know why? Because there's no concept of proportion for him. Because he cares too much about too much. Because he's four years old. And so the theme of that little experiment is he needs to grow up. And maybe the theme for our story is we need to grow up. To grasp the fullness of the, the fullness of the truth and the grace of God, maybe we should put down our Oreos. We're holding on to things that shouldn't have the kind of value they do in contrast. Things like just selfish living and, and vanity and our own preferences, our our worries, our reputation. We care so much about those, they're just Oreos. There's too much to hold on to. And this passage is showing us what it looks like when we lose our earth self and we abandon everything <laughs> for our heaven self and answer those eternal thirsts that are found here. We care less about more and more about less. If you care less about more and more about less and care everything about the worth of Jesus, who is God revealed in the fullness of grace and truth. Watch how Paul just says it out loud, and I hope it's encouraging for you. As, as we are progressively exposed to his glory, we progressively become like Christ. Look what it says in, in 2 Corinthians 3. And we all, who with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. We're just, we're spending that time reading Colossians 1. We contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This woman starts this story as broken, jaded, somewhat bitter. He shows up and says, I am the great I am. And she finds all of her worth now in him. 
and she overflows with joy. She has the joy of a, and the innocence of a young child all over again. Leaves her water jug, doesn't even know why she came there in the first place. Because comparatively speaking now, her reputation back home of being a, a, a woman of a bad reputation, she doesn't care anymore. Because Jesus is the Lord of her shame. Now she's going to go brag about the things she's embarrassed about. Because things have changed in value. So if you're having difficult circumstances, some of them are meritorious and some not so much. But the first question is, am I holding on to something like an Oreo? <laughs> am I caring too much about too much? And then the second question is, is am I contemplating the Lord's glory? Thirst no more. Worthship. Seeing glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And the last thing that happens in the storyline is evangelism. Now, Jesus doesn't say go and evangelize. Evangelism is, is technically explaining the good news. And good, good news, I say good news because the word gospel literally is good news. And we all are evangelists, okay? We, we all can't wait to tell people good news. We're good newsing regularly. Uh, did you know Hobby Lobby's moving into the, the uh, Randalls up here? Do you know that? Good news. That's true. Somebody gets engaged. Hey, good news. I'm engaged. Uh, reveal parties. Our reveal parties, are, they're just good news parties, aren't they? It's going to be a boy. It's going to be a girl. Point is, it just happens. She is compelled by the love of God to tell the people that have spent their lives shaming her about the glory of the Messiah arriving. Paul says in his gospel, I am compelled by the love of God because Jesus Christ died for all men, and now all men are free not to be slaves to their own selfishness. They can enjoy their life with God. They can live for God, not for their own selfishness. And so she, she wants such good things to happen to her community that she runs back and uses what was shameful to glorify God, and she introduces many people to Jesus. The story ends like this. Jesus sees there's a wonderful opportunity, ends up spending two extra days in this hostile uh, town that's supposed to be hostile towards him, and people here, and they surrender to him. And the story starts, it says, oh, we, we were already convinced that you were who you said you were by her story and her testimony, but now that we've heard your very words, we're completely in. It's, there's something to be said about the first place that Jesus tells out loud with his own voice that he is the fulfillment of all Old Testament hopes and all eternal desires of the human soul. He says that to, it. He says that to this woman at the well and this Samaritan town, Sychar. If you ever, if it ever thought, if you ever thought in your mind that Jesus or God has boundaries to where he'll go to bring his his forgiveness. This story says otherwise, doesn't it? First place he goes is to other group. So there's our story of the encounter of the woman at the well. She's got a heart full of shame, and she has a spirit thirsty for love. And all of that changes when she sees the glory of God in Jesus fullness of truth and grace. 
She left a lot more, didn't she? She left a lot more than those two jugs of water. She left her reputation and her shame and her bondage. And she walks away free. And now she gets to live her heaven self. <laughs> She's been living her earth self, but not anymore. It's available to anyone and everyone. Let's pray. Lord, it is a beautiful thing to see uh, the vivid nature of what that encounter may have looked like. Your love and acceptance, your desire to set everyone free. Lord, I'd ask that the members of, uh, of the church here that are listening, and, and they need to hear this because they've been encumbered by shame and guilt, that they'd be free from that. They'd see themselves in that woman. They'd know that you've never stopped loving them or pursuing them. That you'd set them free. That you are the quenching consequence of all of our longings. Lord, I'd ask that we would find ourselves compelled by our love for you and the love for the people you love to bring the good news to as many people as you've arranged before time. It's no accident about who we work with and live with and on our streets and share a soccer field with or coaching with. Whatever it might be, you, I'd ask that you'd help us see our occupations, our vocations for your good works in Jesus Christ. Lord, we love this story. We live this story. Help us worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.